Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 658 with Jacinta Jimenez. If you felt a touch of exhaustion, perhaps, or stress, or overwhelm, or burnout, Jacinta has got the research-backed goods on what to do about it. So you'll learn, one, what most get wrong about burnout, two, how to recover using the Pulse Framework, and three, the tiny recovery habits that build tremendous resilience. So if you want to check out these resources in terms of the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we reference in the conversation, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP658. That's awesomeatyourjob.com slash F658. And if you're chilling over at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out the Gold Nuggets, which give you a summary write-up of Jacinta's wisdom as well as access to the vault of all of these summary write-ups. You can read them in about two or three minutes. They come to your inbox and you can reference all of them whenever you want on demand forever. Gold Nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here is Jacinta's story. Jacinta M. Jimenez, PsyD, BCC, also known as Dr. J, is an award-winning psychologist and board-certified leadership coach with an over 15-year career dedicated to the betterment of leaders. She's an in-demand speaker, consultant, and coach, and has worked with individuals in top organizations in Silicon Valley and throughout the world. A group of Stanford University and the PGSP Stanford PsyD Consortium, Dr. J is a sought-after expert in bridging the fields of psychology and leadership. She contributes to national news and TV outlets, and she is the former global head of coaching at BetterUp, where she developed groundbreaking science-backed coaching approaches for Healthy Today's top organizations foster resilience while also leading a global community of over 1,500 international leadership coaches in over 58 countries. She holds a certificate in diversity and inclusion from Cornell University and provides consultation on topics related to this important area as well. So huge thanks to Jacinta for sharing this wisdom with us. Big thanks to Jacinta for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Jacinta. Jacinta, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, I am too. And I, the first question I had to ask, and, and apologies if you're getting a lot of this, but have you met Prince Harry with your work at BetterUp? <laughs> yeah, I just can't get into too many details, but I am on the executive team and uh, we are delighted to have him. He has shown up to our all hands uh, recently for the company meeting that we had when we announced it. So that was a delight to see him virtually. <laughs> cool. Lovely. Well, we'll tell us, so we're going to talk about burnout here today. 
What is the state of burnout these days amongst professionals? Like, is, do we know what proportion of us are feeling burnt out? Is it getting better or worse? What's the scoop? Yeah, it is. So burnout prior was already a problem prior to COVID-19. It was already becoming an epidemic in itself, so much so that in 2019, the World Health Organization recognized burnout as an occupational phenomenon and conceptualized it as a syndrome that's resulted from chronic workplace stress that hasn't been successfully managed. And again, these are stats prior to COVID, but in 2015, the Stanford, Stanford researchers estimated that job burnout costs the U.S. economy about $190 billion mm-hmm. due to absenteeism, turnover, diminished productivity, medical, legal, and insurance costs. And then now with uh, throwing COVID-19 in the mix, right, and we have changed our lives substantially, we are, our psychological resources are being taxed in, in over long periods of time, and that's taking a very large toll on people's mental well-being and also is setting up conditions ripe for burnout. So I think folks are feeling it even more and the stats are showing that burnout is is on the rise. So it's a growing phenomenon that hopefully folks are, I think the silver lining could be that folks are actually paying attention to it and wanting to address it and wanting to find solutions for it. And you have a sense for in the United States, what percentage of people in general or professionals in particular have burnout? And is there a specific, precise, like scientific definition of burnout we, we, we use when we make such claims? Yes. Yeah. Thank you for asking the second part, both parts of the question, but the second part, especially like, I feel like the word burnout has been thrown around so much lately. It's been sensationalized. So I'd love to get into the specific definition, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of good stats. Like, so uh, Deloitte workplace surveys found that 77% of respondents have experienced burnout in their current job at one point or another, which is mm-hmm. pretty incredible number when you think about it. And your current job is statistically likely less than five years old. You know, it's like yeah, how, given how quickly we, we turn over, Yeah, you know, maybe two, three, four uh, mm-hmm. years. So, uh, and maybe it happened the whole time or right now, or uh, yeah. maybe just half a year, a year ago. Okay. So, so that puts it into perspective. Thank you. And then uh, how do we define burnout? Yes. Thank you for asking that question. Um, so burnout, a lot of people think burnout is just a consequence of overwork. Like I overworked myself to the point of exhaustion. So I burned out. Exhaustion and overwork are part of burnout, but it's not the whole picture. It's a very complex issue. So there's actually three core components that research, especially research led by Christina Maslach, who is one of the pioneering researchers in this field that make up burnout. So the first one is exhaustion. So that's the obvious one. That's when you feel like, you know, you know, you go on a vacation and you don't feel replenished after the vacation. You uh, take time off work. You don't feel better. You'll hear people say like, I feel used up by the end of the workday. I feel tired when I have to get up in the morning and face another day on the job. I feel emotionally drained by my work. So it's that really deep, deep level of exhaustion. But then Mm -hmm. the other components are cynicism and inefficacy. And so cynicism is a really interesting one because a lot of times people who are most engaged in their work are the ones who actually are more prone to burn out because we're passionate about it, care about it want to give our all to it. And that can be kind of a slippery slope. And ironically, a lot of times these folks end up cynical, even though they were the most engaged. And so cynicism shows up by 
becoming less interested in their work, wanting to be, you know, just leave me alone. Don't bother me. I just want to get my work done. I'm not enthusiastic about my work. So it's really questioning their company's mission. The technical term can also be called depersonalization, where you just don't feel connected to what you do anymore. Mm-hmm. And then the final one's in efficacy. And these are, this is another heartbreaking piece because these are people who are competent and able to do their job, but they've gotten to this point with burnout where they don't feel confident at getting things done. They can't, they don't feel like they're making an effective contribution. They feel like they're kind of drowning or, or can't catch up and they can't effectively solve problems. And so when these three components come together, like think of like a Venn diagram, almost mm-hmm. these three pieces come together. That's when burnout happens. But the interesting thing is people have different burnout profiles. So one person may be really feeling the inefficacy, but not so much the exhaustion and maybe a moderate level of cynicism or someone else could be heavy cynicism and not much exhaustion. So it's important to know if you have burned out in the past, how it shows up for you so you can kind of monitor yourself on those three. Okay. So, so we don't necessarily have to be experiencing all three of these to be classified as burnt out. Is that accurate? You need all three, but they can okay. be in different dosages. Or oh, amount. I hear you. So I got a whole yeah. lot of exhaustion and just a little bit of uh, cynicism and, and efficacy. Yeah, there you go. Okay, I'm with you. <laughs> not well. It's not, I don't know. I don't know why I'm laughing. I think I'm laughing just in, in like smiling recognition. Like, mm-hmm. oh yes, <laughs> I, yeah. I've had that before. As opposed to that's hilarious because it's yeah. not. It's it's very troubling. It's very troubling that it's so widespread. Okay, so so there we have it. We framed it up. So that's the definition. That's how widespread it is. Well, so you've got uh, a book here, uh, The Burnout Fix. Do enlighten us. Uh, what <laughs> What is The Burnout Fix or, or maybe any surprising discoveries you've made about burnout? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about burnout or misnomer that kind of surprises people about burnout is that a lot of people think burnout is just an individual problem. Like, I'm not strong enough to deal with, you know, crazy life. And if I was just more gritty, I could have not burned out. But burnout isn't just an individual problem in any way. I mean, individuals exist in systems and and environments. And so we cannot look at the individual's burnout without looking at the environment that they exist in. So it's co-created by our work, too. It's really interesting. There's six specific mismatches between the nature of a person and the nature of their work that leads to burnout. And if you can figure out which of those six mismatches align with kind of what's going on for you, you're going to be a lot better off addressing it. So I think it's really important for people to understand that it's not just you. It's not because you're weak or poor coping strategies. A lot of it has to do with your job environment as well. Okay, well, we'll lay it on us. So, so what are the six <laughs> ways we can be mismatched? Yeah, so the first one is fairness. So if, if you have been working really hard at your job and there's not clear job promotion kind of processes outlined and someone else gets a promotion, this is just one example that could feel very unfair, that can mm-hmm. take a toll. You know, Christina Maslach, again, who I mentioned earlier, she describes burnout as an erosion of dignity, spirit, and will an erosion of the human soul, which is so heavy. But if you've ever experienced burnout, I have, it's a really good description of it. It just, it takes away the pieces that made you feel meaning and purpose at work. And so when you have a lack of fairness, that's going to erode on the human soul. 
A second one is workload. So if you have a huge workload and you don't have the resources, time resources, executive sponsor resources, or just general resources to do it, that's going to erode on your soul as well. The third one is community. So we are human beings first and foremost. We are wired to connect. That's how we've survived for centuries is existing in tribes. We could not have survived without one another. And when we feel a breakdown in community at work, we feel lonely, we don't feel like we belong, that can also erode on someone's soul. And then the other one is values. So if your boss is telling you to do something that feels out of alignment with what you stand for, or you join the company's mission because you align with your values, but the company is doing something that does not feel legitimate or good to you, that's going to take a toll. And then reward. We like reward. We want progress. I always say those shiny stars we got as kids uh, that made us feel good when we did something well, that doesn't go away. We want, we want to feel rewarded for our efforts. And so if we're not being rewarded fairly or being acknowledged, and this can be intrinsic, social, economic reward, it's not just economic, that can take a toll. And then the sixth one is control. So mm-hmm. if, if we don't have control over our environment, it's a recipe for learned helplessness, um, where you're just like, why even try if I have no way to influence my environment, I'm just going to give up and that can lead to inefficacy. Mm -hmm. So it's not just from overworking. It's more due to this mismatch between just our capacities as humans and the nature of our work. Yeah. It sounds like the, the second one resources, it maybe is the only one that really seems to check that box specifically associated with overwork. It's mm-hmm. like there are more tasks that are being demanded of me than I have hours to do exactly, and also sleep, for example. Okay. Well, so, so that makes sense in, in terms of, of, of checking yourself. And, and I find that really, really handy in terms of it is bigger than overwork and that distinction can be transformational in and of itself, just having that awareness. Because I, I guess I'm thinking that I have felt some burnout in times and, and I've been sort of scratching my head like, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not working that many hours. I've, I've worked longer hours before. Mm-hmm. And then the conclusions you can leap to from there is like, well, am I, am I, am I getting weak? Am I out of shape? Am I sick? Am I old already? <laughs> like, what, what's, that's the deal here. I, I'm not as I'm not as vital despite having uh, fewer hours of work. It is like, oh, well, we can zero in on one of these other five dimensions mm-hmm. and, and, and see, well, aha, well, here's the thing. I don't actually care at all about this thing that we're doing. Yeah. It's like, I wouldn't call it evil per se, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> I, I don't think it really matters. And the world wouldn't really be changed significantly whether we did this or did not do this. So yeah. I don't really care. <laughs> yeah. Whereas maybe we're working longer hours, but we have so much meaning and values and reward and community that it doesn't take a toll. So it's not, yeah, it's really powerful to know. I think it's very empowering for folks to know, oh, I can look at this in a much more granular, nuanced way and then figure out what I want to do about it based on that versus just going, I overworked to the point of exhaustion now I have to work less and sometimes yeah. work less and it doesn't solve it if it's a values mismatch or something else. Well, can you tell me, so we've got a, a pulse framework that we can, we yeah. can chat through as well. Yeah. The pulse framework really is kind of my hope to help people build out resilience so that they don't even have to get to the point where they're looking at these six mismatches where right. they can boost their resilience as much as possible. 
Let's do it. Yeah. So on a side note, I like to think of resilience as kind of like a seesaw. So on one side of the seesaw is adversity or tough things that happen to us. And on the other side is protective factors. And that fulcrum, that thing in the middle where it rests on, that's our genetic set point because let's face it, genetics does play a role, but good news. It doesn't play like a massive role. We have a lot of influence. So that's the good news, but we have to be very proactive and putting more and more proactive resilience tools and mindsets and strategies on that other side of the seesaw so that when adversity hits, the seesaw doesn't flip us out of equilibrium. Mm -hmm. So the more and more we can build out our resilience, which is my pulse framework is before building out resilience, the more we can be protected in our ever-changing world of work where things are just going at such fast rapid pace that there's going to be constant changes and and new adversity and it'll allow us to navigate it more easily and successfully so that's my hope in writing this pete the writing book and the pulse framework cool well so then how do we make that happen yeah so The acronym is PULSE because if you think back to Christina Maslach, erosion of the human soul, right? Just like we have to take care of our heart and physical pulse, we also have a personal pulse. That's our spirit. It's our vitality. It's our overall well-being. And so it's an integrative framework because you can't just address burnout by doing one thing, as we talked about. Uh, You know, you need an integrative approach. So it looks at your behavior, your how you think how you relate to others, how you take care of yourself, and how you manage your emotions. And so it's a a very holistic framework. So the P is called Pace for Performance, and that's about how to boost your personal and professional growth in a way that doesn't drain you. So how do you actually stay in your stretch zone where you're actually optimizing for productivity without going over the edge into the stress zone? So knowing where's that really great point where you're doing your best work but you're not going over and stretching yourself so far that over time, it's going to take a toll. The U is cognitive. It's undo untidy thinking. It's really about how to train your mind to be very aware of your thoughts to stave off unhelpful thinking patterns. And again, this is all evidence. I'm a science geek. So this is all evidence-based about how to do it most efficiently. The L is really cool. I think it's, it's about it's the not so obvious ways we can replenish ourselves physically. So it stands for leverage leisure. Leisure has changed alongside the nature of work. Leisure used to be long meals, like old world culture, that the Sabbath people would take off. Uh, you know, I mean, people do still practice it, but there was lots of different cultures that used to really integrate leisure into practices. But as we've evolved, leisure has become kind of like compensatory leisure where you go drink or you drive fast cars, you go clubbing to blow off steam or spillover leisure where you go lay on the couch after work and you scroll through your Instagram feed or your social media feeds and just kind of zone out. That's not true leisure and replenishment. So the leverage leisure is about really how do you optimize for actual replenishment? The S is social. So how to secure support, how to have a really robust community that allows for you to have cognitive flexibility, but also adaptability while also protecting yourself. So how to set boundaries and and those important things that actually are very good for building more relationships. And what is cognitive flexibility? So cognitive flexibility is kind of the art and science of, of being able to look at two seemingly disparate things and hold them in your mind at the same time. So looking at, instead of thinking of things as black or white, 
sitting with the shades of gray, being able to flex your mind to look at things from different perspectives, which is a huge benefit in, in our new world of work as well, to be able to flex our thinking as much as possible versus getting really rigid. It helps with creativity and innovation, empathy, connection with others. And then the final one is the E, and that's evaluate effort. So that's about how to regain control of your time and priorities by really tuning into what aligns with your enduring principles and what are your emotions telling you as data points and really making sure you're putting your effort into the right things so that you're aligned with your values. So you don't have that values mismatch. So all together, it makes pulse. Okay, great. So the pulse framework gives us some a set of five categories of actions to take that can make a, a world of impact. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love to hear perhaps your your favorite tactical to-do inside each of them. So in terms of pacing for performance, we want to get a sense for what's too much, what's too little. And, and how do you recommend we excellently arrive at that understanding? Yeah. Yeah. This is where I really tried to make this framework very practical and realistic and feasible. So let's say I am feeling a breakdown in community, right? Let's go back to those six mismatches. I probably would go to secure support and pick belonging and figure out, oh, read about the science of belonging. And then I have steps on how to create more feelings of belonging in yourself and with others to build deeper connections. If I was feeling you know, overwhelmed by my tech use, I may go to uh, leverage leisure and I have one on silence and the power of silence and the power of solitude as well. There's a really interesting study that I mentioned in the book where you ask people to sit alone with their thoughts or, or to shock themselves. A significant amount of individuals will choose to shock themselves over sitting alone with their thoughts, but without, and and one outlier in the study actually shocked themselves 190 times, which is incredible, but it speaks to how in our fast paced, constantly hustling society, slowing down to stop and distill, it has become an afterthought or is seen as lazy or non-adaptive. But the more we have space, and it doesn't have to be massive amounts of alone time, but to sit and really have more introspection, have more self-awareness, we can then ensure that we're picking things in our life and and, and channeling our energy and emotions and time, these really finite resources, especially our time, right? The ultimate finite resource towards things that matter. But if we're not sitting down and reflecting on how do I build in a solitude practice once a week, small micro moments of just solitude, even to reflect on this, how do I know I'm even going in the right direction? Oh, okay. So, so then, so the action step there uh, is to, in fact, have silence built in. And so you said a a short silence is still great, like Mm -hmm. a minute and just like put it in the calendar or, or, or lock it in after a particular activity in the day. Or or how do you think about that? Yeah, exactly. Like, so a big thing when you're building new habits is, is it's always important to start really small. These don't have to be big overhauls in behavior. That's why, you know, with behavior change, we think about new year's, like most new year's resolutions do not work out because they're just too big. It's it's too big of an ask. So I'm a believer in doing these like little micro moments throughout the day on a more consistent basis and pairing them. We call it piggybacking for habit formation. You pair it with a habit that you've already established. So let's say, you know, I want to start one of introspection or just silence just for a moment 
every time you can come home and put your keys in the entryway table, you could just pause for a second. Maybe it's for two minutes and just breathe or just think about your thoughts for the day. Let's say you're, and you could also tie it to brushing your teeth at night. So tying it to something that's already existing in your habit, in your routines can go such a long way. And then you can think of all of these things, but especially like leisure dosing it. So you can have little micro doses where you have, okay, I know my like, you know, 30 second to one minute doses. And then you can do, you know, moderate doses. And then you can do even mega doses, like where you're like every three weekends, I go away on a vacation into nature because nature can relax me. So you can get pretty strategic about it to integrate it into your lifestyle. Cause that's what matters. I liken it to like a piggy bank. You got to put little tiny deposits into your resilience piggy bank. So if an adversity happens, you can take it out and you don't break the bank. And it's just little things done on a consistent and persistent basis over time that are going to make the most impact. It does not have to be huge, massive changes. Well, so then tell us what a micro dose of leisure might look, sound, feel like in practice in terms of like, what's a, what's a one minute thing that really helps? Yeah. So I have one scheduled in after, after you and I talk, because so I know from, and this is mentioned in my book, it's our nervous system gets activated, whether we are excited or angry or scared. It doesn't doesn't matter. It just knows your heightened level. So I'm excited to be here. This isn't a negative moment for me, but my nervous system is still getting activated. And that's okay to have nervous system activation or stress. Stress is not bad. The problem is, is stress in without, without recovery. So chronic stress without recovery. Mm -hmm. So whenever I have something that is going to you know, get me excited. Like I love this stuff. I love to geek out on it. So talking to you is exciting for me, but I know I'm activating my nervous system. I will set, set aside. So I have five minutes, just five minutes to go outside. I'm lucky. I live here in San Francisco where it's sunny out and, and go outside right, you know, by the Bay and watch some, some seagulls fly around, breathe, get my nervous system back calm and then continuing on my day. So it's not a massive thing, but it's allowing, it's hacking my nervous system just enough so that I'm not in a chronic stress state. Chronic stress without recovery is, is where it can lead to really, really unhealthy ailments mentally mm-hmm. and physically. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. And when it comes to the securing of support, you say there's particular things that really bring on the belonging feelings. What are those things? A big one is compassion. We hear a lot about empathy and empathy is important, but compassion is different from empathy because compassion is empathy, but in action. So it's, I feel for you, but also I want to do something for you. And so it doesn't have to, again, this doesn't have to be a massive thing where you're like driving across town to help a friend out or something. It can be something as small as just acknowledging someone or saying thank you to someone or just checking in with someone. But those moments where you're engaging in compassionate action creates this, what researchers call positivity resonance. And it can give us a helper's high, actually which is very, very good for us and for our relationships. And so when we help others, we actually feel more belonging. And also we're setting up conditions where other people will want to help us. So it's this kind of self-reinforcing process, but it's about actively looking. It's not random acts of kindness. It's actively looking for maybe three compassionate actions you can take each week 
to help someone else, to be there for someone else. There's also really cool uh, meditation, a loving kindness meditation where they've done a lot of brain MRIs to look at, you know, feelings of loneliness before and after this meditation and just practicing it up to in total one hour a week can have significant impacts on how we feel, whether we feel connected and it basically gets us out of our self-focus. So we start, what it is it's doing is you, you sit and think about people that you care about or in your life and you say, may you be happy, maybe you be healthy, may you be safe, may you live with ease and just focusing on other people, getting out of our mm-hmm. self-focus can drive a deeper sense of belonging because we just go, oh, I'm not alone. We all have a shared common humanity here. And that's really powerful because the self-focus with our social media and the pull to just think about ourselves and curate our lives and how we present is pretty strong pull. And it's not necessarily good for us. Oh, thank you. And when it comes to undoing untidy thinking, what is some of the most frequent and problematic thinking that uh, pops up for professionals? And how do we go about undoing that untidiness. Yes. Our minds can get quite untidy. It's like, uh, you know, I liken it to Marie Kondo for the mind, right? Gotta, gotta know what's in there and straighten it out. Well, I think a big one is, is with COVID has created tremendous amounts of uncertainty and our minds are absolutely programmed to hate uncertainty because it is not evolutionarily viable for us to live Mm -hmm. in uncertain conditions, right? Like we're on the prairie as hunter and gatherers and we're like, we don't know what the weather patterns are. Something's going to eat us, right? That's going to set us up to be highly anxious nervous system activation, lots of stress. And if I, you know, this is something, another study is that they've done with people has asked them, do you want a shock now? Or would you want a shock? You may not get a shock, but you may get a shock later today. Which one would you pick? And people always pick, not always, I should say, but often more than not option one, they'd rather just get it over with. And so that creates this kind of negativity bias in us where we're looking for trying to make things certain. And so our mind will paint stories for us to try to make things feel certain, even though we don't know the real story. So let's say you're in a hallway and you usually say hi to your manager and then your manager weirdly walks past you kind of with a not so nice face. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Oh no, I sent my manager her that email yesterday. I should have sent it to her. We make this whole story to make sure we feel like we know what's going on. In reality, the manager could have just had to go to the bathroom mm-hmm. before a meeting. And so we paint these picture, these stories to create a false sense of certainty. And our mind doesn't always get it wrong, but oftentimes we can do what we call like thinking traps, like where we mind read, right? Where mind read like, oh, I know what that person's thinking, right? Or we personalize everything. Oh, they're looking at me weird. I, I know it's something about me, you know, and it may not be about you at all. Or mental filtering, like you do a talk and you get great reviews. And then that one person didn't give you a good review. You're like, it's an awful talk. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't even see the good stuff. So being able to be aware of how our brains are serving us sometimes and also not serving us can keep us from feeling a lot of stress. It's pretty powerful. Yeah. Okay. So then, so we get some awareness and, and, and how do we get it and what do we do with it? Yeah. So you get the awareness by asking yourself, if I just, I say, pick curiosity over concern. So curiosity over concern is the mantra for undo untidy thinking. So the more curious you can get, like, is this thought true? Do I have evidence for this thought? What's another way I could be thinking about this? 
can go such a long way and just checking out your thoughts versus just automatically going down the rabbit hole with your mind and then going on a whole tangent, making up, you know, stories or explanations. And that can help so much to have some space between your thought and what you do. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. He goes, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space lies your freedom. And I'm like, that's it. You have the space to go, oh, wait, let me check it out. And that's, it's, it's not that hard. It just takes a little bit of a pause, the space. Can you share any other key things professionals should know to reduce or address burnout? Yeah, I I think the biggest thing is that hard work and leisure and rest and recovery and vitality are not at odds with one another. If anything, the two go hand in hand. I think there's a lot of misnomers about like, oh, I need to keep working harder. If I don't work harder, I'm not worthy or valuable or more work actually equals more output, which isn't true or success. Part of being successful is you just have to be chronically stressed. And I'm like, no, the research shows us beyond a certain threshold, our efforts to work harder actually don't serve us. We are less productive. We are less creative. We make more mistakes. We are less empathic. And so the more we can actually prioritize this and think of these things as part of work, leaning into these resilience capabilities, the more we show up, we do better work. We we show up to our communities, our families, our customers, our teammates, um, more productive, vital, present, and innovative and empathic. So I just, I, yeah, I would love to communicate to folks that this isn't something like a, I don't see it anymore for a new world of work as a nice to have. It, it's a necessity. It's really a necessity for doing great work and making an impact in whatever way you want. All right. Thank you. Well, you shared a favorite quote. Could you share with us a favorite study or experiment or piece of research? Yeah, I I think one of my favorite pieces of research in in writing this book is just the power of nature. I think we all kind of know nature is pretty special, but just to think about like from a time span perspective, like human evolution, we've evolved, like we've spent 99.9% of our time as a species in nature. So we've evolved to find restoration in nature. And so this is part of my leverage leisure sections as nature and finding sanctuary in nature. And in just even 20 minutes in nature, like, or listening to nature sounds, even looking at nature scenes can reduce our cortisol levels, which is our stress hormones substantially. And it's powerful. It's almost, a, it's, it is like a form of medicine physiologically for us and then mentally as well. So nature is a powerful, powerful thing to think about when thinking about how to buffer against chronic workplace stress. And how about a favorite book? I think a favorite book is, is as Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning and just the power of meaning and how, how important it is for us as humans that, that we can't be happy all the time. Emotions are inherently impermanent, but we can always have meaning. And meaning can help us persevere and be more resilient in the face of adversity. And a favorite tool, something that you use to be awesome at your job? I think it's support. I am a biggest believer in being a good people picker is what I call it. So lining yourself with people that you care about, that also up level you, that challenge you, that support you. So I have this support group of, of professionals that I go to. We were very close, six of us, and, and we 
counsel each other on matters tied to work or career moves or new things that we're thinking about tied to our work. And it's just allowed me to, again, have that cognitive flexibility to look at things from all sides of the spectrum. It is a superpower to have multiple perspectives help you out along your journey, but it's the right people. In the past, I've, you know, you could pick not so great people and it it does take a toll. It's, uh, you know, those energy vampires, whether they mean to or not, they can just take a lot of energy from us and leave us less vital. And we want people who fill us, not drain us. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you frequently. Yeah. The main one, this is kind of my, my mantra tied to, you know, that stress isn't bad. And I say, when you stress, you must rest. So if you have a stressful thing in your schedule, just counterbalance it with a rest. And so you can have what peak performance researchers call oscillation. So stress and rest is okay to have stress. We're going to have it, but just make sure to rest. Micro rest does not have to be a big one. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? The burnoutfix.com. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I, I would challenge folks to really consider how building out your resilience and your well-being is kind of the fundamental piece, a baseline, I would say, for doing, being awesome at your job. I adamantly believe a new world of work necessitates new ways to approach work. So the more you can lean into these things that allow you to feel more vibrant and full and have a full soul, the better you're going to be at all the other efforts of working hard and all this productivity hacks and working smart. So I, I would say this is a non-negotiable and I challenge you to really consider it a core component to how you approach work and life. Jacinta, thanks so much for sharing the goods and I wish you all the best and, and many burnout free work days. Thank you so much for having me and letting me geek out on this stuff with you. I really appreciated Jacinta's perspective that it is bigger than just overwork. And that could be huge right there in, in terms of say, hmm, something's wrong with, I'm not working too much, but I'm feeling burnt out. So I must be broken in some way. No, 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 no. Let's take a look at some of the other potential areas of mismatch. And that may very well be our culprit, our root cause, and where we got to exert some efforts to make things better. And then do some resting from that stressing if you're exerting those efforts. When you stress, you must rest. Loving it. So again, those show notes, the transcript, the links to as we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP658. Hope to catch you next time. And peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers. 
hunt for muddy puddles and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.